I mean, we had a homeless problem. It was really bad. That was one thing that uh, I visited and we wanted to do something about. The previous mayor just said they ought to all go away. You know, there's no reason. You know, if you build something, they'll all come here uh, because you'd have something. Well, we do have a lot of coming here now, but it has nothing to do with the con- uh, having the homeless plan. It's just something that's worldwide. It's, mm-hmm. it's even broader than the United States. I get the Guardian newspaper, and London's got people sleeping in the rough, as they say, and that's a big problem in not only London, but other cities in Great Britain. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with former Mayor Bud Clark. As mayor, he initiated and led the campaign to build the Oregon Convention Center, and he is known for his distinctive cry. Outside of Portland, Bud Clark is best known as the raincoat-wearing model for the Expose Yourself to Art poster from 1978. I had a lot of politician friends that came in, and my neighborhood, uh, uh, there's a lot of politicians. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I like I knew Margaret Strong. She was a neighbor, and uh, just a few blocks from me, from my house in northwest Portland. And then Gretchen Kafori. Mm. You know, they, they, see, I was asked to run for mayor. I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't thought about running for mayor at all. And uh, friends of mine, uh, David Kish and... Uh, Ernie Bonner. Uh, Ernie Donner was a planning director for a period of time and a, a good friend, and so was David Kish, who worked in City Hall at that time. But anyway, he, in, in the, uh, the spring of 1953, uh, they asked me to run for mayor. They came in for lunch and asked me to run for mayor. I, I just thought, well, I, who in the hell would want that job? You know? <laughs> so, so anyway, I put it out of my mind, and then in the, in the fall, Gretchen Kafori and Margaret Strawn came in and, and for lunch, and they asked me to run for mayor. And then I thought about it seriously. Yeah. And I talked to my uh, relatives, my wife and my mother at that time, and other friends. And uh, then I put it out of my mind again. And then because I just thought somebody was going to run for the office. Right. Well, it came around Christmas time. One of these relatives uh, that uh, I'd spoken to, uh, Michelle Fritzler, gave me a a gift in the box that uh, looked like the Portland building and it said to the mayor with love and so I called up uh, Margaret and asked her Margaret was on the city council at that time yeah. and I asked her if anybody was running against Frank because I just assumed somebody would and nobody was and so uh, on the 28th of December after Christmas I said well I'm going to do it I'm going to run for mayor and so I borrowed $50,000 on my house and ran for office and that was only five months before the primary. So yeah, you had yeah. A lot David of... Kish said, "Well, it's too late. You can't do it now. <laughs> it's too late. You know, you got to raise money and everything." So, I, I feel extremely fortunate because it was the business I'd been in for all those years, and I'd been in the on the in the neighborhood association, involved in the Northwest District Association for a number of years, yeah. but uh, hadn't really been in politics like at all. You say. But uh, there was all these people and friends of mine and customers of mine, which I all obviously turned out to be friends too, who volunteered. Hmm. You know, I, uh, Margaret Strawn gave me a, about a two-hour talk about how to run a campaign, and and uh, so I was uh, sitting in a booth at uh, my tavern, Gusalo Inn, and booth number two, I think it was, and and I need a a, a campaign manager, and uh, Mike Carstensen, who is a woman. 
uh, came over to the booth and said, you need a campaign manager, and I'm a good candidate for that, she said. Oh, that's and uh, we talked, and she became a campaign manager. She'd worked for Bobby uh, Kennedy campaign oh. in Roseburg, and uh, that was part of her qualifications. But she turned to be, out to be the key person, really, in, in many ways for my campaign, because she brought in people that she knew. Uh, these were all volunteers. Nobody... You know, nobody's getting paid at all uh, during this whole campaign. The only person that was getting campaign is we decided we'd have kind of an official campaign manager, which was Ben Padro. And uh, he was uh, teaching at Portland State, of course, uh, speech and so forth. Plus, Mike uh, Carstensen Carstensen said I needed to be... uh, uh, have some speech lessons to to learn some things, and so he gave me speech lessons, and and he wanted to be paid, but he wanted to be paid in cigarettes, Tarleton <laughs> cigarettes. So uh, that's back when uh, we still had cigarettes at the Goose, and so I would pay him with cigarettes, right. and so uh, I ran, and all these volunteers turned up, and that's what got me elected was the friends and so forth that out of the, in the campaign because we didn't have any, there was no commercials. At all. I mean, first put an ad in the Oregonian, and there was no response on that at all. Hmm. It was costly. And uh, then we eventually decided to have billboards. And so we had this billboard campaign, and that was $35,000 of the $50,000 I had. And then we started getting in, we had started getting money in too, though. We had, we got some campaign money from other people too. So it was building up. It was definitely grassroots. And I have to imagine uh, your owner of the Goose Hollow. You were the bartender, and you worked. Yeah, at, yeah, I'd worked know, behind the bar for years and, and cooked, you know, and everything. Yeah, and so you had to have a pretty good pulse on what was going on in the city and what people's concerns were. Yeah, well, the see, at that time we were in a recession, a real recession. Reagan was in office, and uh, he would uh, we were coming out of inflation under Jimmy Carter, and so he everything was a clamp down, and and Reagan was spending all the money or taking all the money and spending it on the military. And there's very little military in the state of Oregon. You know, we have some National Guard, Air Force, and so forth, and National Guard ground, of course. But uh, that's minimal compared to California and uh, Washington and the East Coast, where there's all kinds of military spent. We do have precision cast parts, and precision cast parts at that time, uh, there wasn't an airplane in the free world that didn't have parts from precision cast parts right here in Portland, Oregon. Of course, they're still thriving now, even after the war. So anyway, it was... uh, uh, I knew. I knew. And another thing that I knew about the recession was the fact that, in the past, I always had a lot of architects that came into the goose, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they would. Um, they always had something on the drawing boards that was going to happen in the future. But at this time, they were going to have to go into out of town to get any work. And here, I had a son in college too at that time. Jason was in college and going to be an engineer. And where is he going to get a job? Is he going to be able to stay in town? Mm-hmm. So that was part of the motivation to uh, run. Plus, uh, you know, the normal politician didn't think that Frank could be beaten, and I, I felt fair, very confident he could be because uh, it was a lot of negatives. He'd sent the peace, police in when he was president of the council at one time to break up, break up a, a peaceful demonstration at Portland State mm-hmm. against the Vietnam War. So, And uh, he had been mayor for one term. Is it Frank? Frank Ivancy. Ivancy. Yeah. Uh, but he, he'd been working for the city government for 27 years. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you first came on the scene, he didn't take your candidacy seriously. No, 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 yeah. no. He didn't have a clue. Um, I, there's another reason for that that I discovered afterwards, which I didn't know was going on at the time. But uh, um, the uh, he did, first of all, he didn't take me seriously because he didn't think I could possibly win anyway. He felt very confident about that. 
but uh, and, but we went on having uh, events and so forth. And and uh, Ben Padro, my designated uh, campaign manager, was always he never came to any of these things. Of course, he did come to some some of our meetings at my house. We had Sunday meetings at my house of the campaign committee, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but he would never come to see all the volunteers and how much work they were doing and so forth. But I don't think he wanted to see them because he was in contact with, uh, with uh, uh, Mildred Schwab. Uh, Mildred Schwab used to call him. I don't know if you've heard that story. Uh, yeah, I want you to tell it, though. This <laughs> made me smile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, he knew that Mildred liked to talk to Frank or mm-hmm. would talk to Frank. And so uh, he would tell her that uh, this campaign was going nowhere. There was nothing he could do. So I don't think he wanted to come over and see all these volunteers. Right. I, I used to be mad at him about that. But I didn't know this conversation was going on until mm-hmm. afterwards, after the campaign was over. Yeah. And, and uh, it wasn't until close to the election when were they poll numbers that were coming out that showing the two of you neck and yeah, neck at that time? Yeah. Well, uh, they weren't. Some of those poll numbers weren't public, but I had poll numbers from a friend of mine uh, that uh, was a company that uh, uh, demonstrated to me that uh, you're looking pretty good. He said, you know, and but Frank didn't. I don't guess. I don't know if he ever saw those or yeah. took it seriously. It was in the St. John's Parade, and you probably heard that that I. I was in the back of the parade, and Frank was in the front, and they were booing him, and they were uh, <laughs> yelling, you. "Yeah, yeah." So, uh, and that's where he became aware that there was right. a problem, and then uh, there was some negative advertising that uh, a colleague of his uh, came out with, and that just helped boost it, and I won with fifty-four point six percent of the vote. So, and, then, and in the primary, which was really a godsend because exactly. uh, we could start planning and doing things right away. It, you were essentially mayor-elect in May. And I was mayor-elect in May fifteenth. Yeah. yeah, and no, you didn't have wonderful. to go ahead for yeah. a November election. We have another fifteenth coming up here. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. May fifteenth. It was nineteen eighty-four. That you were. I was elected in eighty-four, and so yeah. I had that period of time, and so I took office on uh, January first of uh, eighty-five. So you had quite a bit of time to prepare for. I did. Your role no, it as was wonderful, and I just uh, uh, we wanted to start doing things right away. And uh, George Lee uh, was my first, uh, I guess, assistant. You'd say chief of staff, so to speak. And uh, we went to PDC, Portland Development Commission, and uh, asked about what things were doing. We wanted to, my first goal in being mayor was to put Portland back on the map because we kind of slid. We had these architects having to go out of town for business, and I wanted to put Portland back on the map, so yeah. to speak. Uh, we f- I felt that we'd lost uh, this business uh, image and so forth. So, uh, and we needed to get confidence in ourselves. Anyway, uh, there was a uh, there was a project going on that we just thought was ridiculous. It was a slogan about the pinstripe thing, and it, we were going to send out these ties, and it was going to cost fifty thousand dollars to the pinstripe rose or something. And we just thought it was silly. And mm-hmm. and so Pat LaCrosse, then he came to us, he was head of PDC at that time, the executive director. And, and he came to us, come to me with a, a page and a half uh, double spaced projects that were proposed. And on the second page was build a convention center. And I said, we're going to build a convention center. And uh, of course, I don't know what he thought or anything, but uh, I thought it was a very good idea because we hadn't had a convention center here ever, uh, built. We had a coliseum, but we right. didn't have a convention center. And Seattle had had one built 25 years before, and, and, and here we're in this beautiful scenic place. Why can't we have a convention center? So um, I announced that a few weeks later. It was a very, I was trying to form this speech, and it never came out very well. I was on my own then and, and at the uh, Portland Visitors Association. Everybody just, just happier in hell, you know, and, and uh, just screamed and yelled and, and uh, 
very happy. And uh, Dennis Buchanan uh, was the uh, chairman of the uh, county at that time, and, and I'd known him because he was a customer of the Goose. And, and so he took it on himself to go and uh, uh, stimulate. That I wanted to be, there was another thing, I wanted to be a decision of the greater Portland area and mm-hmm. not just the city of Portland. You know, if you spread the cost around, it costs less. And this is going to benefit the whole state and the whole uh, metropolitan region. So I want it to be in a a larger area. So uh, the only people that could have a vote uh, for that period of time, you know, for the uh, convention center uh, that would contain the whole metro area would be uh, either metro or the um, uh, Port of Portland. And the Port of Portland didn't want to have anything to do with it. So... Mm. Uh, but the Metro did. They wanted to do something. They they didn't have as much visibility in the area as I think as they wanted. And uh, so they took over the job. So Metro was going to be the scene. And so uh, Dennis took the proposition to uh, first the city of Portland and got a, the city council, even with Frank still in office, uh, we got a, uh, a resolution yeah. uh, uh, passed uh, to build a convention center in yeah. the city of Portland. Got it in Multnomah County and took it to Washington County and uh, Clackamas County too, and got all all those jurisdictions to uh, with a resolution, which is not much commitment, but it's some commitment. It's, you know. a, it's a green light. Certainly. It's a great start, yeah. you know. And so I was very happy about that. So now, when you took over, you found out that the city reserves of twenty-seven million dollars were down to a few thousand dollars. So you came in with yeah. a. With a well, when, t- when I took office, tank. that wasn't didn't really I didn't really know. Well, of course, I did have. We had an office uh, in the um, first Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church right across from the museum yeah. on Park Blocks, right. and uh, they donated an office to us. We uh, paid them back later, but uh, we we got an office there and we're close by City Hall, mm-hmm. and so I had uh, people come from Portland State and uh, give me a, a rundown how governments are run and how you finance them and so forth. So I had instructions, uh, and I'll think of their names in a minute, but they came down and gave me instructions and uh, a few, le- in fact, I even went up to Portland State and, and uh, they instructed me on how, uh, you know, I've been in business for 25 years, right. but I, I didn't know all the ins and outs of government business. So when I did take office, I found out immediately, uh, or they were warning me about it ahead of time, but I didn't know how bad, well, it really wasn't as bad as it could have been until I got into office because the uh, unions got a, a judgment right at that time. Uh, they'd been working on it for several months, and it was actually decisions that made before I got there that the uh, when I took office that the police and fire get a, a 10% wage increase. Well, that's uh, over a third of the, uh, more than that, I think it's two-thirds of the general fund budget. Yeah. Like you say, Frank Ivancy, when he took office, there was $27 million in, uh, you have a good memory, $27 million <laughs> in uh, in reserves, yeah. and by the time I got there, there was only a half a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars left. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't take care of this uh, huge cost, and so even though the budget had been done by the previous administration, we had to overdo the, we had to do the, the budget over immediately. And uh, but I had a good council. We all got along together. Uh, Mike Lindbergh and uh, Margaret, Str- no, Margaret Strawn was there, and uh, Mildred Schwab, Dick Bogle took over. And we worked together and, and uh, worked the budget out. I had to lay off police officers at the same time. The police and fire, and in fact, I had to lay off a couple of firemen too, I think. Hmm. But basically, it was, it was temporary, and everybody criticized. And that was an unusual thing because usually it was the fire and police, and the police would constantly get suck up more of the budget of that because they wouldn't take the cuts that we always said the cuts that prior to that had always been taken out of the Park Bureau. 
I said, well, they, they're the ones that they're, they're getting, you know, they're taking the money, so they're the ones that take the cut. Well, they did, and we cut out of, so it, so it all worked out, and uh, by the time I left office, uh, the AMBAC Corporation, who is a, an international corporation that uh, insured governments, states, governments, and cities, and said we were the best managed city in the United States for our size, which was a great compliment, and it, was, it came along with a $10,000 scholarship for students that are going into the public service. Oh, that's awesome. So it was a very good thing. Yeah, you turned the yeah. budget around, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, in and, the yeah and we left, we left the city with over, what, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, I mean, $20 million. Yeah, reserves. $20 million or something. It was supposed to be 10% of the budget, and it was about that. And I don't know what the budget is now. It's much higher than that. Yeah, yeah. It's imagine. a big city and everything. We did boost the population, <laughs> but most of it was done by, it wasn't people moving into the city as much at that time. It was, oh. in fact, people weren't moving in. We had people moving out, but uh, we did, we expanded, and uh, the city boundaries went all the way. We're right up next against Gresham now. So. Right. There was a whole lot of the east side, and that was a lot of troubles doing that too, because sewers were being put in, and there was a lot of antipathy, you know antipathy towards the city at that time because of the sewers and so forth. But it wasn't just me; it was the state. And mm -hmm. so forth. But it was a difficult time in the annexation process. But we did it. Yeah. And I moved into the city uh, at the end of 1989 during oh, the yeah. middle of your two terms, yeah, yeah. and there were a number of things that you put into place. We talked a little bit about it, and that is the convention center. Yeah. You that was uh, one initiative that you pushed forward uh, and got built here in town. What was that process like? Did you meet a lot of? Oh no, no. I went out to all the governments and yeah. and enhanced. You know that got their support if I could some more, mm -hmm. and then uh, I campaigned for it all. Yeah. You know, all different places, uh, all over the city and all over the metro area. As a matter of fact, on that, and uh, we won. We won. Yeah. I can't remember the, what the vote was, but it was one. We won mostly in Washington County. It was a long process in putting it together, too. I mean, started out saying we're going to build a convention center, but then we had a committee that was going to, where are we going to put it? Mm -hmm. And uh, how much is it going to cost? And uh, who's going to design it? And so we had a committee, a design committee, and came up with different ideas of where this uh, convention, or the convention center could go with different sites. Roger Breesley is at U.S. Bank, who looks down on the railroad stations and so forth, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, said that's where the conventions had ought to be, and and because uh, all those tracks weren't being used much right. at that time, I said if we're going to decide on a place, we should know the, what the cost is going to be ahead of time. We don't want to decide on a place and then have to go in and condemn, and then raise the price and so forth, mm -hmm. and have to condemn. So let's get a price up ahead. So on the site where Roger Breesley wanted, uh, there were three railroads that own it, but one that coordinates it here in town. We asked them what they wanted for it. I think it was like $33 million with bonding and everything else. And so I, no, it was 33 acres and it was $18 million, I think. <laughs> that acres. sounds a little bit better. Yeah, and it was it included the railroad station too, you know. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we brought the railroad station and, and, and we bought that area where the, the Pearl is, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, that was a, a godsend in a sense there too because uh, uh, we wouldn't have had that otherwise. That was a spinoff from where we we're going to put the convention center. So we eventually decided where the convention center was going to be, and 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 uh, the property were that area was not built up at all at that yeah. time, and so we uh, purchased uh, that area, Metro did, and uh, eventually, and that's where we built, built the convention center, and uh, Bill Frasca and, and uh, his company is the one that uh, decided on the architects, and they did a fantastic mm -hmm. job as far as I'm concerned. 
fact, I had somebody complimenting me the other day about how well kept it's been kept, too, by Metro. Metro does a good job. But it hasn't been fairly functional. We, uh, we, well, this was only the, the first part of the convention center, and uh, but it was doing very well and so forth. And We wanted to build a convention center hotel, but we were never able to do that. But now Metro's building the convention hotel. I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, that's been yeah. a long time yeah. coming. Really. Yeah, it has been a long time coming, and it should make it so we have larger conventions, and it's kind of yeah. a key to the way it's progressed. There's a lot more hotel space now than there was then, too. So, Well, one of the other, a couple of the other things that happened on your tenure was your 12-point homeless plan. Yeah, that was one of those early on things that we did. I mean, we had a homeless problem. It was really bad. That was one thing that uh, I visited and we wanted to do something about. The previous mayor just said they ought to all go away. You know, there's no reason. You know, if you build something, they'll all come here uh, because you'd have something. Well, we do have a lot of coming here now, but it has nothing to do with the con- uh, having the homeless plan. It's just something that's worldwide. It's, mm-hmm. it's even broader than the United States. I get the Guardian newspaper, and London's got people sleeping in the rough, as they say, and that's a big problem, not only London, but other cities in yeah. Great Britain. And they even have more programs of helping the than we do. I mean, more programs. Uh, of course, everybody calls it socialism here, but it's, I'm a socialist, I guess, because you've got to help those people that are falling off. It's, it's, it's a very humane thing to do. So we did a 12-point homeless plan, and that was done by Dan Steffi, mm. uh, who had brought up. And, and he talked to Don Clark, of course, mm-hmm. uh, who had, had been dealing with homeless for a long time. And most of our homeless at that time were people that lived in the state of Oregon. During that recession period, during the Reagan period, uh, the, the people were not buying lumber overseas, and we were very dependent on lumber at that time. We didn't have as many electronics uh, as we do now. Mm-hmm. And the, the dollar was high, so they weren't buying uh, lumber overseas, and the rent interest rates were high, so they weren't, we weren't building homes and so forth across the United States. And uh, the dollar being high, too, it made it so our agriculture economy wasn't able to survive as well because people weren't buying as much agriculture because of the dollar high, high dollar 30 years ago it was when you put in the 12-point homeless plan. And I remember, you know, be, going up and down Burnside and oh, seeing yeah. a lot of homeless, and here we are 30 years later. Oh, yeah. And there's just yeah. no solution to it. So I think basically it's a success of capitalism. I mean, you, you're, we're doing well, and uh, more money is going to the top end and not to the bottom end. And you have to have some way of survival when you get such an efficient economy, because mm-hmm. everybody's interested in, in uh, laying off labor. I mean, we're uh, constantly trying to figure out how you know, you don't need as many people to work. Well, if you do that, you eventually, uh, you know, you're making, you're making everything in, in electronics and so forth. It's wonderful, but uh, what are yes. these other people going to do? Are they all going to just uh, be on a corner asking for money, or is there other things we can do? We need some kind of a, a safety net. And also, I think everybody's going to go into art and other things eventually, or something's got to happen one way or the other. Anyway, that's, it's a huge question, and I don't think we're going to be able to answer it for a long time. No, you know? I don't think so either. But I wanted a lot of people to come to Oregon, but I've, and I think a lot of the people coming to Oregon are coming for good reasons, and, and we're having a, a very good economy now, so we'll see. But we've still got too many homeless. So anyway, hopefully we'll f- solve some of those problems eventually. Chip away at some of those problems. You yeah. also supported Mass Transit, Max's light rail line. That was a big issue for you. Uh, oh, yeah. No, no. It was, no, I was very pleased. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is to possibly get the cars off the streets. I don't think you can stop people from buying cars. But no. That's the only thing that's going to solve the traffic problem, I think, eventually, is uh, having a good mass transit system. And, and bicycles. I promoted bicycles in my own way. 
Blumenard uh, really took up the cause later when yeah. he came into office and, and really started implementing things. And then Sam Adams and other mayors after me have, have really broadened uh, the scope of it, which so is good on the bicycles. But I supported mass transit from the beginning with the uh, first uh, max line going to Gresham was under construction when I took office. And so mm-hmm. that disrupted business downtown, but uh, we got over that too. And then I promoted the idea of going west. And, uh, of course, it was going to go right by the Goose Hollow Inn. And my wife was running, you know, Sigurd was running the Goose for those uh, uh, eight years that I was in office. And she was very much against it going in front of the Goose because it would mean that, the, the, you know, the street would be filled up. You know, it wouldn't be able to get to the Goose for a while. But I said, it's the natural way to go. I mean, it's, it's just got to go that way. And, and in the long run, it'll help us. It'll be you know, we'll suffer a bit, but in the long run, it'll help. And that's turned out to be true. And uh, Max is successful. And now it goes to the airport. A lot of people meet at the Goose when they're going to go to the airport. And then they get (laughs) on the airport, you know, the airport from the Goose Hollow there. Yeah, so. It all worked out. I'm very proud of that, too. You had a a thing called the Mayor's Ball going on, too, when you were Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, of course, that was right off the bat. That was the first thing we did to maybe uh, uh, make people feel good about the city of Portland was mm-hmm. the mayor's ball. And uh, there's a wonderful piece that's written by Billy Holtz, who was uh, one, probably, probably the originator. There are three guys that claim credit for the mayor's ball, but we wanted to pay off the campaign debt. Mm-hmm. And so this was one idea. There was the businessmen uh, wanted to get to know me now that I was mayor. And so <laughs> they had a, a big dinner uh, down at the Hilton hotel and so forth that raised some money, which was very good. And then, uh, we needed some more money, and of course, the capital that was raised by the the, the businessmen's dinner uh, helped to initially start the, the the mayor's ball, the first mayor's ball. Yeah. And uh, but uh, Billy Holtz was a musician, and so it was his idea about the music, and he worked on my campaign. And a good friend, McCracken, Bob McCracken, was my mm-hmm. finance guy during the campaign, and he claims part of the idea. And then also uh, uh, Phil Thompson. He's an architect and a friend of, that uh, was on my campaign from the beginning. And so the three of them put it together and uh, got permission from the city to use the, con- the Coliseum. So we had uh, this huge group of people. We set up the stage at each end of the Coliseum, and you would put an orchestra on one end, and uh, the one at one end was playing, the other one would be setting up at the other end. Mm-hmm. And then we had several different rooms that were... Uh, all different kinds of music. That first ball was just fantastic. Well, the balls just get better. Mm-hmm. They just got better. I mean, it was a win-win situation for everybody because everybody enjoyed the ball. Who came to the ball? Local bands got contracts mm-hmm. out of that because the people would come to see who was playing in Portland. And mm-hmm. It was really a wonderful thing that went on for eight years. The first campaign was to pay off the debt, and I gave it away then after that. The yeah. Portland Music Association uh, did it and organized it and made it happen, and uh, then it was given to charity. There was close to $400,000 that was uh, donated to charity out of the seven balls after that, which was wonderful, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. After I left office and Vera took over, Portland Music Association said that Vera said it was uh, too much identified with me. Well, it, hell, it would be identified with every mayor if it was kept up, and I don't know whether it could ever get started again because you need that really that uh, energy to get going and, and uh, have the confidence that everything's going to turn out all right. Yeah. It was a huge outset and it could be a huge outset again. You had talk about uh, Curry uh, and. Uh, oh, yeah, Terry Courier. Yeah, yeah, Terry Courier. And, mm-hmm. and uh, he said they were giving some thought to uh, start it again. I wish they would or could. I'd 
I'd like to help him. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone could do it, Terry could. He could. Isn't he amazing? Uh, he is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. He is, yeah. So you were mayor for eight years. Eight years, yeah. And you decided after that? Well, I, yeah, before it was ended, I wasn't trying to be a lifetime guy or anything. I'm not, uh, and I'm not really a politician. And uh, I tried to start community policing. That was another goal. We have a whole, I wish I could find that board. We had a whole list of things that were our goals mm-hmm. when I first took office. And it hung in my office for a long time. And, but community policing, that was another thing we initiated before I took office. Uh, I decided before that that I was going to fire uh, the uh, current police chief because I think the focus was wrong as all on a military approach, and I think that's the wrong approach for a police department. And, and uh, I'd been shown a uh, video uh, done by the Eisenhower Foundation uh, by a local person. He came to me, and he had done this video for the Eisenhower Foundation comparing the Tokyo Police Department, the Santa Ana Police Department, and the Portland Police Department. And, of course, the uh, Tokyo Police Department was the example, and the Portland Police Department was the bad example, and the Santa Ana Police Department was the police department that was moving towards the ideal model, which was the Tokyo Police Department. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were hiring officers of the same ethnic diversity that was in the town and so forth, and and, uh, that was a goal that we should have for the city of Portland. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Japan, they, they they only have... Japanese there. They don't have the diversity that we have. But at the same time, uh, they had Kobans in the neighborhood and so forth. And this is something that Governor uh, Suzuki told me at the last dinner I had with him just before I left office in uh, 1992. He said that um, if community police is going to work, the police officers have to live in the neighborhood. Uh, At that time, you didn't even have to live in the city. And I kind of smiled, and that, I think, it upset Governor Suzuki. He was in his 80s then. I kind of alienated a relationship there because I smiled <laughs> and told him this. But he said, you know, I, and I believe that. you got to get, you get to know your people in the neighborhood. If you, if you don't live there, you got to get to know everybody in the neighborhood and, and, and get them on your side, mm-hmm. you know. And that's the way it used to be because people didn't used to commute like they do now. I mean, people live in the suburbs, and then they work here. That's something still going on. And the Justice Department's come in since even saying that we have to do things in the city of Portland. And we can do it better. And I wish the union would get behind it, really affect it, and find out an ideal there and talk on both sides of the fence and see what can be solved. Ted Wheeler, our our current mayor, is really on the right track. He's brought in an outlaw, is her name, from Mm -hmm. uh, as chief of police. And I think that was a very good choice. I chose to hire from strictly within the department or within the city or either Multnomah County Mm -hmm. for my... Uh, police chiefs, because I wanted to give them a sense of that they can go up in office and become chief eventually. I, I remember a previous chief I knew, uh, I didn't think he ever got really even to know the, the Portland Police Department, so mm-hmm. I think it was important to have somebody from the city. So my first choice was Penny Harrington, which uh, turned out to be not so good. Penny took it as a great achievement in becoming chief, but she didn't spend the time here. She was spending a lot of time out of town giving speeches about being the first uh, woman police chief. Eventually, her captains who she selected rebelled against her and uh, so I had to change uh, chiefs and, and uh, put in other chiefs along the line. Had several good chiefs as a matter of fact and, and ended up with Tom Potter. Yeah. Yeah. Who went on to become mayor. Maybe oh, a decade later yeah, was it? Yeah, he became mayor. He, yes. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. ran, he ran for mayor eventually and ran for mayor. But uh, he had difficulty uh, getting along with the other commissioners I, and I think it was a very disappointment to him. 
You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Bud Clark in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with former mayor Bud Clark. As mayor, he initiated and led the campaign to build the Oregon Convention Center. Outside of Portland, Bud Clark is best known as the raincoat-wearing model for the Expose Yourself to Art poster from 1978. We were talking before we turned on the microphones that Goose Hollow celebrated 50 years yeah. last year. Yeah. So congratulations and happy anniversary I'm on very that. pleased about that. Yeah, it was who 19... <laughs> exactly. Who knew? 1967. But you had a, a place before that, 1962, Spotten yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. It eventually had to be torn down and became Ira Keller. Yeah, well, it was like Urban Renewal came right. in. Right. Yeah, but uh, originally I wanted to buy uh, the Goose Hollow before, uh, when I bought it, it was called Ann's Tavern, and I'd been a customer there for years and so forth, and, and I wanted to buy it from Ann. Well, in 1961... Uh, she said she'd sell it to me, you know, and it was a handshake, and uh, I ran it for the month of January 1961, and then she said, well, I don't think you can make any money here, so I'm going to take it back. Well, I learned right that I should have learned it before. You've got to get a contract on paper and make it so it's going to hold. Mm-hmm. So uh, five years later, in 1967, she called me up, I, well, and then I bought the Spotten House, uh, the man that had it before had had an accident and wasn't able to maintain it, and the owner of the property wanted somebody in there. So I got a good deal on being able to, to go in there because I didn't have any money, very little money. I mean, I had, we only had $1,600 in cash, and uh, uh, then we built it up to about 2300 with credit card and so forth when we finally got the permission to open by the Liquor Commission. And anyway, we didn't have any more money, but I went down to Die Finance and borrowed $100, so I had... I could buy a keg of beer and put uh, money in the till. And, but it, it, we succeeded. We got yeah. one business at a time, and it turned out to be a good location. It was right across from the auditorium right. and uh, close to Portland State. But uh, when Ann came down and asked me to uh, about think about buying that again, I said, sure, that's the location I really wanted to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I got a contract. I got it on paper and everything, and then took over in May of uh, 1967, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, May 15th. I May think. was a good month. May's been a good May month for good, you. No, I always think springtime's a good month. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a wonderful time. Then I was remodeling the goose. I changed the, the way the design inside to make it more efficient and other things I had to do in the bathrooms and so forth. And, and then I got notice uh, in June that uh, Ruben Renewal had taken over and they were going to take the yeah. Spotten House away. My lease had expired too. Yeah. And so... Uh, I learned lessons from that. It was going to be taken away by November 29th. And November 29th, 1967, we had this huge party. And uh, then everybody came up the goose. <laughs> it was just wonderful because I'd build up the business quite a bit. Exactly. And so you have customers both ways. And it was a progressive business. I mean, you're a pro- you were a progressive mayor. You are a progressive yeah. thinker. You had uh, smoke-free Mondays. Yeah. No cigarette smoking way that was the, before. That was at the goose. That was yeah. at the goose. Way before, you yeah, know, smoking yeah, was yeah. uh outlawed. Well, anyway, I did that for two years. The uh, first three women came in for lunch, and that was booth two again. And one woman smoked, we're all leaving, you know. 
because they wanted a real place where she could right. smoke. We were doing record business at that time. Yeah. That was a beer drinking time, and yeah. no brew pubs. And this was before brew pubs, and we just had three beers on tap. It was Budweiser. I had Budweiser for years, and Budweiser told us we sold more beer per square foot than any tavern in the United <laughs> States. And that was always a where we went to me. But we were a very small tavern. We didn't have yeah. the deck at that time. And two years later, we were, we were down to selling less than a keg of beer a day on Mondays, mm-hmm. and so I went the other way but yeah. now we're non-smoking i mean like all taverns yeah. but you got to smoke outside exactly but you can see on the ceiling the ceiling was white i painted it white when i moved in and it still has well it's that it's a smoke color now right it's that kind <laughs> of yellowish funny. yellowish yeah, tint yeah, to it yeah, yeah you retired from goose hollow not too long ago is that right i'm not sure when that happened i just kind of faded away into the yeah. background i think rachel took over the management and uh I guess I went back to managing a little bit after I got out of office, but I don't know exactly what how that changed, but faded away. But yeah. she'd done it; she'd managed it before for a little while when uh, when I was in office. Sigurd was there most of the time. Mm-hmm. It probably coordinates this time that uh, Rachel came to start having her kids because uh, she's a school teacher. She's an oh, English okay. high school school teacher, and she did that for a number of years, or not too many years. But then when uh, Antonio was going to be born, then she uh, dropped out and. Then Orion's the youngest son. Antonia's now what, 14, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Orion is just eight, or will be eight, I think. <laughs> Her son. <laughs> so she's running the goose and doing a much better job than I did. She always introduced, uh, you know, made it progressive. And, yeah. and she put in salads and made the, you know, the menu, a little diverse menu and so forth. So it's, it's doing well. It's doing very well. Yeah. It's a different atmosphere. When I went into office, we had three beers on tap, you know. And I came back, they had 12 beers and good wine. I always used to have box wine, and now they got good wine and so <laughs> forth. So. Do you miss it? Do you miss the day-to-day? No, yeah. I don't miss it. No, yeah. no, no. No, I I still visit, but yeah. uh, no, I'm happy she's running, very happy. Yeah. yeah. And I don't drink like I used to at all. You know, I don't consume beer like I used to. Yeah. I still consume, don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't slow down too much though after you were mayor i mean you stayed active in neighborhood associations and yeah no i did that yeah and i was on the transition projects board for a long time i just quit that but uh, i don't want to be any more boards now i'm done and uh, i'm just trying to keeping myself in good shape is is uh, my goal now i guess of course we can't let you go without two things we got to talk about the poster Oh, Expose the poster, Yourself yeah, to Art, yeah. which which was done in 1978. 78, yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's how a lot of people got to know you. Well, I was on the, uh, the, the Northwest District Association started out because uh, just like everything south of the Spotten House, uh, that was right on the corner of uh, 3rd and Market. Mm-hmm. 3rd and Market, uh, you know, the street used to be kind of an extension of Skid Row in a way. There were a lot of hotels, uh, you know, low-income hotels and so forth. Well, south of there was a neighborhood, the Southwest Portland neighborhood, uh, that extended all the way from Market Street all the way to Arthur Street at the other end, oh. and from Fourth Street down to the river. Mm-hmm. And that was a wonderful neighborhood. I went to Lincoln High School, and that was a huge neighborhood. It was a, lo- a lot of the uh, Jewish population lived there, the Italian population. That was all torn down uh, by urban renewal in ni- 1958. Was the kind of the beginning of it, I think to make room for what the buildings are there now. It's supposed to upgrade things. Well, I consider it a big tragedy because of all these things, but actually the synagogues were moved around different parts of the city and uh, the restaurants and so forth and uh, Nushin's Pickles, Vosler's Bakery, it was I, where I got the original Russian rye for the Reuben sandwich and so forth. 
they were all moved out of that area. And so that was just a big empty thing. They tore it down, left the street structure as it was at that time. And, and then uh, after they started building up, they changed the, the, the pattern of the street. But I thought it was really a tragedy. Well, anyway, a lot of those people had moved over to Northwest Portland mm-hmm. when uh, Lloyd Keefe came over on the stage of Chapman Grade School and said, well, these buildings get old and they have to come down. It was lucky he didn't get torn off the stage and, and I don't know what, hung, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so the Northwest District Association was started to stop, first of all, urban renewal and or tearing down of the houses. And then it ended up stopping a freeway. Uh, the yep. St. Helens Freeway was going to go out Vaughn Street and, and uh, Thurman and stop that. Blocked off the streets around Chapman so uh, the park and the school were combined. And they set up a neighborhood plan about going to be housing and what's going to be business, making 23rd and 21st the major business streets. And so now in 1977 or 75, they're going to turn it over. Then they're going to put it to the Office of Neighborhood Associations down the city. I said, well, we've been fighting the city. This doesn't make sense, you know, to me. And so I thought we could live on our own because we had been living on our own. I'd been the treasurer for a long time, and we've been doing it by donations of the people that lived in the neighborhood, you know. We had an office right on uh, 23rd and so forth. That's where our meetings were. I fought against that. And so I said, well, uh, another thing we need is a newspaper mm-hmm. to identify the neighborhood and make us feel give a sense of place and uh, because most of the news was coming out of the Oregonian and they didn't have any neighborhood news unless there was a crime, you know, unless right. there was something sensational. And so I started, the, uh, so it started as a volunteer neighbor newspaper. It's called The Neighbors Act. That was the name mm-hmm. it was decided on. And we ran it for a year. I put $5,000 in. We ran it for a year. And then um, it, was trying, it was hard to run a, a neighborhood on a volunteer program. But uh, Mike Ryerson was the uh, fellow that always showed up. And so I uh, asked Mike, or, and he wanted to do it, take it over for a year and become a private newspaper. Yeah. You know, put another $5,000 in. And he ran it, and he ran for a long time. And then he eventually sold it. And then Alan Klassen started another newspaper. Yeah. So we still have a newspaper. That's the important thing. And Alan Klassen does a wonderful job with Examiner. So uh, as a spinoff of this, the Neighborhood Association appointed me to the Venereal Disease Action Committee. (laughs) And I don't know if you heard this story or not. not. (laughs) Anyway, and uh, VDAC, Venereal Disease Action Committee. And these meetings were early in the morning, and, and I'd ridden my bicycle down, and I was wore a poncho a lot in the rain. And that's back when people were still dressing up when they went downtown, you know, and they had their umbrellas and so forth. And after one of those meetings one morning, well, we had these T-shirts they wanted to sell. And after one of these meetings one of the morning, I went by the statue, I can never pronounce it. I can never pronounce it either. or whatever her name is. And I rocked by the statue and and, uh, I was in this poncho, you know, head shorts on and said, you and I got something in common. Well, I mentioned this to to uh, a friend of mine, uh, Derek Mearden, who I told him he wanted to sell this T-shirt. Well, he said, well, why don't you flash the statue? <laughs> and I didn't know what flashing was, but uh, because of that suggestion, Mike Ryers and I went down there one Sunday morning and took several pictures. Yeah. And this one picture with me in the overcoat and over so things, it was just so funny. We said, let's put it in the, in the neighbor and ask and, and give a prize for, for a caption. Oh, good. Yeah, and so... Uh, the neighbor newspaper had just started. It was it was less than a year old, and but there was like 350 entries. Wow! Uh, with a caption, you know, you want to buy a watch, right. want to transfer, want, you know, different <laughs> things. But three people came up with "Expose Yourself to Art," and they sure they shared the twenty-five dollar prize. Oh, perfect! <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an iconic poster. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's just it it it's does fun. it. It does it. Yeah. yeah. 
And so uh, Mike didn't have the money to publish it right off the bat. So well, he eventually borrowed $500 yeah. to make the first printing. And before I ran for mayor, it sold a quarter of a million copies and uh, in, in Europe, everywhere. And I mean, before I'd run for mayor, it sold that many. Mm-hmm. And it's still selling now. It doesn't still belong selling. to Mike anymore. He's passed away, too. Yeah. You know. But he, he's a wonderful marketing guy and a yeah. wonderful guy, too, because he helped my campaign tremendously. He came up with a button that said, Bud Clark is serious. I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> one of those. I never saw that. <laughs> well, yeah, that was the first button. It had a rose on it. But uh, it was like, nobody's going to take me seriously, you know. <laughs> but um, he got the buttons out, and I put it on. And my, one of my assistants uh, under Mike Carsonson had signed me up to go down to this uh, reception at the Benson. To, and uh, Dr. Joyce Brothers was making a speech down there to a bunch of women. And mm-hmm. she thought this would be a good place to campaign, you know. And I had this button on it. Joyce Brothers is really short, and uh, I'm not that tall, but here was this button. Uh, Bud Clark is serious, and she looked up at me. She says, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and that was exactly what Mike, had, you know, like I say, is a winter marketer. Yeah. And then you go and talk about your running for exactly. office and what you're going to do, you know. That's perfect. It was perfect, yeah. So The other thing I was hoping you would do before you left, of course, is your signature sound. Oh, whoop, whoop. Yep. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Yeah. No, anyway, I don't know where I got that, I don't but know. a friend of mine. Yeah. I think it was, you know, this Joe LaPointe I talked about. Yeah. I, I lived with him for a period of time, and they had uh, guinea pigs, little guinea pigs, and this little black guinea pig was really aggressive. He'd always figure out how to get it by the cage and go to the next cage. George Raft, I, call, I don't know if you remember, there's an actor named George Raft, Mm-mm. but they had him named George Raft. And, and, and whoop, they, they make kind of a sound. It's a whistling sound, but right. it's kind of like that. So I don't know if I got it from that or I got it from a, a friend, uh, Dick Osman, who used to come in the, in the spotting house, and he'd start doing that too kind of thing. And, and I'd say, calm down. Don't do that. Don't, <laughs> you're disturbing things. So whoop, whoop, where it ever came from, it happened. It happened. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you so much, former Mayor Bud Clark, for coming into the studios and talking to me today. This is wonderful. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Bud Clark. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.